Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in Sultry, Savannah, this is Obscure Season 3, Wuthering Heights. I am your host, your friend, your ear lover, your literary mansplainer-in-chief and Georgianologist Michael Ian Black, Southern Gentleman Esquire, back at you with another, you know, few pages of literature deposited right into your ear holes for your enjoyment, amusement, and betterment. Because yes, if there's one thing this podcast does above all else, it is to create betterment for humanity. Uh, Nobody more equipped to do that than myself. Dealing with uh, trolls on Twitter. Twitter trolls. Trolls. T-W-O-L-L-S. Because... I have made the mistake yet again of suggesting that we do something about gun violence in this country. And my goodness, when you say such a thing, the hordes just descend on you like a, what, like a plague of locusts. They just come out of every orifice that Twitter has to besiege and taunt and they say terrible things like you're you you you're not funny and and you know stick to football and you know horrible things like this and it oh it just it just is very hurtful you know just very very hurtful to me when uh, one suggests eh, that something could be done to reduce uh, gun violence in this nation well they don't care for that at all There is no amount of gun violence that would offend these 
people, and I'm putting the word people in air quotes because who knows how many of them are actual people and how many of them are just some sort of AI-generated outrage bot. Very hard to say. So that's been annoying, you know, the way it is when you are online. But otherwise, hey, things are pretty good. You know, just a travel update. Last weekend, Minneapolis. This weekend, Burlington, Vermont. The following weekend, you know, the uh, the hellscape that is Chicago, Illinois. And I am, of course, being sarcastic when I mention Chicago because that is the go-to city for these gun aficionados when mentioning how dangerous our nation is and how they need need these firearms to keep themselves safe from the marauding Chicagoans who are hellbent on remaking the nation in Chicago's image in Oprah on every street corner if they if if those Chicagoans had their way it's just terrible over in uh, Wuthering Heights, and that is where we left off last time, was actually in the house, Wuthering Heights, with a, it seems like maybe an imminent love triangle brewing. Now, very imminent, because we, we have not yet met the third member of this potential love triangle. We've got two of them. We've got Kathy Jr., and we've got Hareton. Uh, uh, squabbling over at Wuthering Heights, in particular when Kathy discovers that Hareton is in fact her cousin. She is appalled at the notion. She had thought Hareton to be just a manservant there at the decrepit and ghoulish home Wuthering Heights, and then uh, it was revealed to her that no, this sullen young lad is in fact her cousin, and this just set her to heaves and convulsions for reasons that are not quite clear to me, other than perhaps she does not care for his temperament, but so be it. Very rude of her to react in this way to such news. And then we've got Heathcliff and Isabella's son being transported due to Isabella's declining health, if not her outright death, over to Thrushcross Grange. And the cousin will be staying there. So now we've got a, we're sort of reassembling the triangle, the original triangle of Heathcliff, Catherine, and Linton, or Hindley. Hindley. Hindley? Linton? I get, I, they all get, all the names get mixed up. You, you know who I mean. So, uh, generations repeating, triangles repeating, you know, you, and uh, look, if you put one triangle on top of the other and you overlay it in just the right way, what do you get? A Jewish star. And then, terrible remarks by Kanye West to follow. So, let us pick it up here. Kathy Jr. has just found out that Hareton is her cousin. We are in chapter 18 of... Wuthering Heights. So Kathy has flung herself into Ellen's arms 
for refuge from the idea of Hareton being her cousin. And we pick up Ellen's narration. I was much vexed at her and the servant for their mutual revelations, having no doubt of Linton's approaching arrival, communicated by the former, being reported to Mr. Heathcliff, and feeling as confident that Catherine's first thought on her father's return would be to seek an explanation of the latter's assertion concerning her rude-bred kindred. So, um, yes, yeah, so uh, uh, the, the thing that has caused her such vexation is Hareton's rude-bred temperament, which, you know, that was Heathcliff's doing, you know, because Heathcliff basically raised Hareton. And what do we know about Hareton? You know, he's a, he's a dog hanger, hangs up dogs, you know, just in, in like a shop window. The way you might do with a with some ducks in Chinatown. Hareton, recovering from his disgust at being taken for a servant, seemed moved by her distress, and having fetched the pony round to the door, he took to propitiate her. Propitiate propish propitiate her. What does propitiate mean? To propitiate her. What is propitiate? Let me just crank up the old research machine here and Look up propitiate, P-R-O-P, propitiate. Oh, win or regain favor. So, you know, if anybody's being rude bred here, it's Kathy. He took to propitiate her, a fine crooked-legged terrier whelp from the kennel, and putting it into her hand, bid her wished. And now we've got a footnote. So uh, the dog hanger has given her a dog. Dogs everywhere in this book. They just love their dogs and hate them. Oh, so wished means to hush. So here, here, take this whelp and be quiet. For he meant not. Pausing in her lamentations, she surveyed him with a glance of awe and horror, then burst forth anew. Well, she's being a terrible guest. You know, she really is. Now, uh, if you remember, the reason she's there at all is because she escaped, basically. She ran away from Thrushcross Grange to go explore, to go over to Peniston Crag and, you know, just sort of see the world. She's been kept up. She's 13 years old. She's been kept up at Thrushcross Grange her entire life. Her father has attempted to seclude her from the world and its evils. And now she is feeling her oats. And she's just trying to, you know, get out there and explore and See what lies beyond the hedges there at Thrushcross Grange. I could scarcely refrain from smiling at this antipathy to the poor fellow, who was a well-made athletic youth, good-looking in features and stout and healthy, but attired in garments befitting his daily occupations of working on the farm and lounging among the moors after rabbits and game. So, uh... He does not ramble among the moors. He lounges. Still, I thought I could detect in his physiognomy a mind owning better qualities than his father ever possessed. Good things lost amid a wilderness of weeds, to be sure, whose rankness far overtopped their neglected growth. Yet, notwithstanding evidence of a wealthy soil, oh, you're torturing this metaphor, Emily. I don't, I don't enjoy a tortured metaphor. You, you can take a metaphor. I enjoy a metaphor, but once you, once you extend it much past a sentence or two, 
I start to get distracted. Yet notwithstanding evidence of a wealthy soil that might yield luxuriant crops under other and favorable circumstances. Mr. Heathcliff, I believe, had not treated him physically ill, thanks to his fearless nature, which offered no temptation to that course of oppression. It had none of the timid susceptibility that would have given zest to ill treatment in Heathcliff's judgment. He appeared to have bent his malevolence on making him a brute. He was never taught to read or write, never rebuked for any bad habit which did not annoy his keeper, never led a single step towards virtue, or guarded by a single precept against vice. And from what I heard, Joseph contributed much to his deterioration by a narrow-minded partiality which prompted him to flatter and pet him as a boy because he was the head of the old family. So she's basically saying, you know, this kid was just left to, to run amok, you know? being it, it's, like, it's like the old story of, uh, of the kid raised by wolves. And Heathcliff is nothing if not a wolf. And so he's not, he hasn't been taught to read or write and, and any, any bad habit. He just go, keep, keep on doing it, you know? And he hasn't been spanked or disciplined. If anything, uh, just the opposite is true by Joseph, who was partial to him because he is the heir to the old Earnshaw family. And as he had been in the habit of accusing Catherine Earnshaw and Heathcliff when children of putting the master past his patience and compelling him to seek solace in drink by what he termed their awful ways, and then awful, uh, you know, awful, is spelled O-F-F-A-L-L-D, much in the manner of Margaret Atwood's Handmaid's Tale. So in if he was a handmaid, he would be of fault, but that's neither here nor there. So at present, he laid the whole burden of Hareton's faults on the shoulders of the usurper of his property. If the lad swore, he wouldn't correct him, nor however culpably he behaved. It gave Joseph satisfaction, apparently, to watch him go the worst lengths. He allowed that he was ruined, that his soul was abandoned to perdition, but then he reflected that Heathcliff must answer for it. Hareton's blood would be required at his hands, and there lay immense consolation in that thought. Well, that's interesting, because my understanding or instinct regarding Joseph was that he didn't particularly mind Heathcliff, that he was loyal to Heathcliff. But maybe Joseph's sympathies are more with the Earnshaws. I mean, my my sense was that uh, Joseph's sympathies laid with whoever was paying Joseph's salary. And so if the money was coming from Heathcliff's pocket, then his allegiance would be to Heathcliff. But there seems to be some suggestion here that Joseph is a little bit more loyal than that. Joseph had instilled into him a pride of name and of his lineage. He would, had he dared, have fostered hate between him and the present owner of the heights. But his dread of that owner amounted to superstition, and he confined his feelings regarding him to muttered innuendos and private combinations. So, okay, fine. 
I, I, I guess I got Joseph's character just a little bit wrong. All right, well, let's, uh, you know, let's take a quick uh, breather, you know, get a little oxygen into the old lungs. Return in a moment on Obscure. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Back on Obscure. You know, we're just getting a sense of what it's like living there at Wuthering Heights with Hareton. And uh, we're reconsidering our opinion of Joseph, never high to begin with, and no higher now, but slightly altered. I don't pretend to be intimately acquainted with the mode of living customary in those days at Wuthering Heights. I only from hearsay, for I saw little. The villagers affirmed Mr. Heathcliff was near. And then there's a footnote. I don't know why there should be a footnote after the word near, but let's let's see if we can't discover. Oh, tight-fisted, it means. So uh, uh, Mr. Heathcliff just does not, does not want to spend any money. And it's always unclear a little bit as to how much money he has or where he got it. But uh, he's not in any habit of relinquishing it. And a cruel, hard landlord to his tenants. But the house inside had regained its ancient aspect of comfort under female management, and the scenes of riot common in Hindley's time were not now enacted within its walls. The master was too gloomy to seek companionship with any people, good or bad, and he is yet. This, however, is not making progress with my story. No, it's not, Ellen. And, and uh, you know, I feel like a lot of this uh, could have been condensed, meaning the entire book. You know, you, you, there, there probably was a way to tell this book in, you know, in about 10 minutes. This asshole and that asshole, and they're at each other's throats, and, you know, they each had some kids, and then, and then, uh, and then that asshole and that asshole, and then, you know, everybody's an asshole. The end. 
I mean, we don't know how it ends yet, but probably, presumably with somebody dying and somebody else being an asshole. That's how it's going to end. Maybe Heathcliff will just, will just uh, you know, ramble through the moors and disappear into the fog. Who knows? But I am kind of getting impatient. I mean, you know, we're, we're making steady progress here. We don't have that much more of the book, you know, another hundred pages or so, but I'm... Uh, getting a little impatient with it just because it's all it's all reminiscences reminisce, reminiscences and i feel like there's a story to be told in the present day you know with joseph lockwood and and kathy there haunting the place and we're never quite it feels like we're never going to quite return to that instead we're just going to hear about the past well why not just tell the past as if it were the present you know what i mean why not just tell the whole story in chronological order without it being a a, a flashback a memory a reminiscence. Why are we doing that? You know, what 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 are we doing here, Emily? I mean, I'm enjoying it, but what are we doing? Just because it's, you know, it's kind of a fun, dishy story, and everybody's horrible. It's Seinfeld among the Moors. Like, that's all fine and, and dandy, but I don't, I don't know. I don't know that the story needed to be told in this way. It could, the whole book could have just been told as a first-person account of Mrs. Dean's life, you know? It just could have been her story. As she came as when she came to live at Wuthering Heights and what she saw and and the terrible doings of of her quote unquote superiors and their malevolent ways and it could have been a social criticism. It could have been a, it could have been a lot of different things, but instead it's just this weird memory play. You know, this sort of dishy memory play that doesn't, yes, it's, it's, yes, it holds together. Yes, it's a story. Yes. And it's about, it's about uh, the blackness in our hearts and jealousy and, and, uh, and codependency and the, and thwarted fate and all the rest of it. But, you know, it's just oddly structured. That's all. That's all I mean. It's just oddly structured. Anyway, this, however, is not making progress with my story, nor is my commentary making any progress with the story, but... There you have it. Miss Kathy rejected the peace offering of the terrier and demanded her own dogs, Charlie and Phoenix. They came limping and hanging their heads, and we set out for home, sadly out of sorts, every one of us. I could not wring from my little lady how she had spent the day, except that, as I supposed, the goal of her pilgrimage was Peniston Crags, and she arrived without adventure to the gate of the farmhouse when Hareton happened to issue forth, attended by some canine followers who attacked her train. So, Kathy's with her good dogs, Hareton's with his bad dogs. There's what's that? There's that sci-fi, or I should say, fantasy book where every person has a kind of animal spirit that attends it let me see if i can find what fantasy book with animal companions yes what is that called it is called the they made a movie about it you know and 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 they have to uh animal companions animal animal familiars they all and they all have different animals and the animals are kind of their spirits you know and uh, that's a little bit what it's like in this book with dogs. The dogs are your spirit. They're your sort of inner life. They attack when you are malevolent or they are agreeable companions when you yourself are agreeable. And that's how it is with Hareton and his, uh, 
his canine followers, and we see the results. They had a smart battle before their owners could separate them. That formed an introduction. Catherine told Hareton who she was and where she was going, and asked him to show her the way, finally beguiling him to accompany her. He opened the mysteries of the fairy cave and twenty other queer places, but being in disgrace, I was not favored with the description of the interesting objects she saw. I could gather, however, that her guide had been a favorite till she hurt his feelings by addressing him as a servant, and Heathcliff's housekeeper hurt hers by calling him her cousin. Again, I don't know why this should have upset her so much. If anything, she should have been delighted, I would think, to, to discover that she has a cousin and that the cousin knows all the secret places in Peniston Crags and shows her the fairy caves and does all this stuff. Um, so why should it upset her to discover that he is not a servant but a, a, an actual blood relative? Hard to say. I don't, don't quite understand that. Then the language he had held to her rankled in her heart. She, who was always love and darling and queen, an angel with everybody at the Grange, to be insulted so shockingly by a stranger. She did not comprehend it, and hard work I had to obtain a promise that she would not lay the grievance before her father. I explained how he objected to the whole household at the heights, and how sorry he would be to find she had been there. But I insisted most on the fact that if she revealed my negligence of his orders, he would perhaps be so angry that I should have to leave, and Kathy couldn't bear that prospect. She pledged her word and kept it for my sake. After all, she was a sweet little girl. End of chapter 18. Well, uh, oh, the word, oh, we're, oh we're just in a pickle right here because uh, we're so far into the episode and the chapter has ended. And and dare we, dare we begin chapter 19 with just a few minutes to go? Well, why not? Look, there are no rules here, my friends. We are ruled by our own temperaments here on this podcast. We can do as we wish. And so we shall spend a few minutes on chapter 19. Interesting little little uh, last sentence, though. After all, she was a sweet little girl. It feels a little tinged, doesn't it? A little bit of foreshadowing. Now, where that where is that foreshadowing leading us? Is it that she was a sweet little girl, meaning uh, something terrible is going to happen to her sweetness? Is it? Does it mean that she is going to be poisoned in some manner and the sweetness will dissipate? Hard to say, but I think we do know that bad tidings will come to Kathy as they must come to everybody in this book. Chapter 19. A letter, edged with black, announced the day of my master's return. Isabella was dead, and he wrote to bid me get mourning for his daughter and arrange a room and other accommodations for his youthful nephew. His daughter. Get mourning for his daughter. Whose daughter? Whose daughter? Oh, mourning, I think, uh, like uh, mourning uh, outfits and things for his daughter. Got it. 
Catherine ran wild with joy at the idea of welcoming her father back. Well, her aunt just died, you know, don't be, don't be so, so excited, you know, it's a little sad. And indulged most sanguine anticipations of the innumerable excellences of her real cousin. The evening of their expected arrival came. Since early morning, she'd been busy ordering her own small affairs. And now, attired in her new black frock, poor thing, her aunt's death impressed her with no definite sorrow. She obliged me, my constant worrying, to walk with her down through the grounds to meet them. Linton is just six months younger than I am, she chattered as we strolled leisurely over the swells and hollows of mossy turf under shadow of the trees. How delightful it will be to have him for a playfellow. Aunt Isabella sent Papa a beautiful lock of his hair. It was lighter than mine, more flaxen, and quite as fine. I have it carefully preserved in a little glass box, and I've often thought what pleasure it would be to see its owner. Oh, I am happy, and Papa, dear, dear Papa, come, Ellen, let us run, come run. Well, she really is uh, uh, all in a twitter about dear Papa, dear Papa returning home. And who can blame a gal at that age of being excited to see the return of her, her parents and the imminent arrival of her new playmate, her cousin Linton? Because, you know, she's been cooped up there in Thrushcross Grange with nobody her own age, and now she's got a flaxen-haired boy, her cousin, coming to visit, and things are going to be grand, just grand, I tell ya. Without that surly Hareton boy spoiling everything, four miles away there in Wuthering Heights, things will go back to normal. She ran, and returned and ran again, many times before my sober footsteps reached the gate, and then she seated herself on the grassy bank beside the path, and tried to wait patiently, but that was impossible. She couldn't be still a minute. How long they are, she exclaimed. Ah, I see some dust on the road. They are coming. No, when will they be here? May we not go a little way? Half a mile, Ellen, only just half a mile. Do say yes to that clump of birches at the turn. I refused staunchly, and at length her suspense was ended. The traveling carriage rolled in sight. Miss Cathy shrieked and stretched out her arms as soon as she caught her father's face looking from the window. He descended, nearly as eager as herself, and a considerable interval elapsed ere they had a thought to spare for any but themselves. While they exchanged caresses, I took a peep in to see after Linton. He was asleep in a corner, wrapped in a warm fur-lined cloak as if it had been winter. A pale, delicate, effeminate boy, who might have been taken for my master's younger brother. So strong was the resemblance. But there was a sickly peevishness in his aspect that Edgar Linton never had. Okay, hold on a second. He might have been taken for my master's younger brother. Right, her master is Edgar Linton, but he has no... Oh, I guess he does. I was going to say no blood relationship to Edgar Linton, but of course he does. Edgar is his uncle. But the the um, pale, delicate, that sort of screams of Heathcliff, and effeminate sort of is more Edgar. Um, well, what, whatever. Anyway, 
so we've just gotten our first look at young Linton. We stretch. We uh, we pause. We bid farewell for this week as we see this new storm approaching on the horizon because there is bound to be trouble with these three, these cousins three. And I uh, don't know how it's going to play out. It certainly won't be good. Somebody going to die. Somebody always going to die in this book. Um, but, you know, back then in early America, people were dropping dead left and right, you know, and that's just how it was, you know, either from consumption or rickets or some damn thing and sometimes just malaise as Catherine Earnshaw seemed to die from her own despondency and despair over a frittered away life. It, an alternate history of Catherine and Heathcliff would be an interesting read. Say Catherine had decided to abandon her family, the Earnshaws, and run away with Heathcliff when she had the chance, what would that life have been like? Interesting to contemplate. Would it have been a happy life? Almost certainly not. As I say, they are Sid and Nancy. They would have destroyed and consumed each other. Something terrible would have befallen them both, but they wouldn't have immolated an entire family with them, or two families with them. You know, they just would have gone about their own way, and, uh, you know, died like gutter punks at the Hotel Chelsea or something. But that is not what happened, and instead we get this tortured reminiscence from Ellen recounting all the ways that they have destroyed two families there at Wuthering Heights. So, let us say goodbye, let us, um, let us pause, we'll pick it up next time on a another combustible episode of Obscure. But until then, I wish you adieu. This season of Obscure is produced by me, Michael Ian Black, and the great Robin Lynn. Our theme song is by Craig Wedren. We rely on you, the listeners, for support. So please... Go to patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black. Sign up. There's all kinds of fun stuff. There's goodies. You could join the book club where we get together. We talk about the book that we're reading. Uh, and it's just a fun community. So, you know, head on over to patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black. And I will see you next time.